0: Today's uh, study will be 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and so these books are going to cover a lot of the same ground as we did in Samuel and Kings, because they're covering a lot of the same people. Uh, These books are mostly narrative once you get into 1st Chronicles chapter 11, the first 10 chapters are a genealogy that we'll discuss shortly. They're mostly narrative from 1 Chronicles 11 up to 2 Chronicles 36. And remember, much like Samuel and Kings, uh, while we have in our Bibles 1 and 2 Chronicles, these were originally written as one book. The, the reason that we have First and Second is because one scroll was not long enough to contain all of this. So it was on two scrolls, but it was one volume. It was maybe Chronicles Volume 1, Volume 2, you might think of it that way. So if I say Chronicles, I'm referring to the spread of both books, but in your Bible it's first and second for that reason. Um, The narrative is going to trace the time of King David, uh, not from when he's anointed by Samuel as it starts in 1 Samuel, but rather from the time that he's the king. He's already the king when this narrative starts, and it's going to go all the way up through the fall of Jerusalem, which we talked about last week in our lesson on kings. Uh, but there are some pretty substantive differences between Chronicles and Kings for all that they have in common. Uh, does anybody recall the, the key difference between Chronicles and Samuel and Kings? Um, does anybody recall why it matters? So I'll, I'll I'll narrow that question more specifically here. When, not, not year-wise, but in terms of series of events, there's a big historic event that happens. When is Kings written uh, in relation to that event? During the captivity of Babylon. During the captivity of Babylon. Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, is one of the great redemptive historical events in biblical history. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it's written... During the captivity. Why does that matter, Mr. Johnson? Because they're trying to figure out why they're there. Why they're there. How did we get here? What went wrong? Somebody else, when would Chronicles <coughs> be written? Talked about this briefly last week, but maybe you can just make an educated guess based on the fact that the last week's lesson was written, or the books for last week's lesson were written during. I saw someone mouth it. When was Chronicles written? After. And Miss Duncan, for bonus points... Do you know what the significance of the approach of the chronicler is? What, what What's he trying to get across post-exile? To show the people who went like, back their history and like what they did wrong. Yeah, to show them what they did wrong, but also, with an eye to the future, where do we go from here? What do we do now? Now, the Babylonian captivity is a very big deal in the Old Testament, Um it's, it's As far as significance goes, it's, it's honestly up there with the crossing of the Red Sea. It's that significant of an event in the Old Testament. As we said last week, the Babylonian exile is going to be the backdrop for every book of the Old Testament that we study from here on out. The rest of the Old Testament, with the exception of the wisdom poetic books, are written with the captivity of Babylon in mind. So Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah... All of the prophets, it's all related in one way or another to this great event. They're either, the prophets, that is, are either warning of its coming. Isaiah deals with that. You've heard many sermons from Jeremiah dealing with the impending captivity, the impending takeover of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, They're either warning of it or they're dealing with it in the moment. Ezekiel, Daniel, prophets of those sorts are writing during the captivity. Or they're helping to process after it prophets like um, Zechariah, Malachi, ones like that. I saw a question. Uh, And and by the way, that's one argument for why we know that the revelation uh, of the canon is closed. Because that's God's general pattern. He acts in history. There's a great act in the history of redemption. And then he explains that act. He records it in prophetic writing. So, for example, we spend a lot of time in the Pentateuch. That was originally written. Even Genesis, though it chronicles the very beginnings, was written for God's people right after the crossing of the Red Sea as they're approaching the Promised Land. And so we get the five books of Moses explaining and working out the ramifications of that great act. Similarly, in the Babylonian captivity, we get... All of the prophets and all of the historical books in one way or another. And then also the New Testament. God acts in history and the coming of the Lord Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And all of the New Testament books, all 27 of them, are explaining the implications of that. And so how do we know the canon is closed? Because the next great act of redemptive history that God would record theoretically is the return of Christ. But there is no need to record that because then we will be with him. We will be with him in heaven. So that's why we know the canon is closed. So all of these books, wrapping back into our main point for today, are explaining one way or another the Babylonian captivity. Now, let me ask this. Why would the Babylonian captivity be such a big deal to the people of God? These other acts, the the delivery out of Egypt, the coming of Christ, these are glorious acts that speak of salvation and redemption. Is Babylonian captivity doing that? No. What is it? It's punishment. It's judgment. Why is this such a crisis of faith for the people of God? Would somebody please read Genesis 17, 7-8, and then somebody else flip to 2 Samuel seven sixteen. So Genesis 17, 7-8, and then 2 Samuel seven sixteen. Who's got Genesis 17? (coughs) Miss Duncan. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to the seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou for the stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. right. so... God made a promise to be God to Abraham and to his offspring after him, and as an assurance of that promise, He gives them what in that passage? The land. The land is. He said, "I will give this land to your offspring after you." Now Genesis, or excuse me, Second Samuel seventeen six or seven sixteen. Uh, Miss Mobley, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who's he talking to there? Who's God making that promise to? David. David. And he says, you will have a son. You will have a descendant that will sit on your throne forever. So God says to Abraham, I'll be a God to you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant, which means forever. And he says to David, as an outworking of that much later in history, And, on top of that, you will have a king that will rule on my behalf, sitting on the throne forever. What's going on in the Babylonian captivity? Do they have the land? No. Do they have a son of David sitting on the throne? No. This is a big deal. This is a crisis of faith for them. If you are just regular run-of-the-mill Israelite, just a common person, you've, you've received these promises from God about land and a king, and both of things, these things are supposed to be yours forever. But during the Babylonian captivity, they're gone. And there's seemingly, humanly speaking, no hope of a return. Right? like Maybe they knew the prophecy of Jeremiah that it would be 70 years. Some did. But nonetheless, even though you've got that, that promise that there will be a return, it doesn't look like it right now. This is a big deal. Your whole belief system has been assaulted. It's a big deal and one that we'll be addressing probably through spring with all of these prophetic writings. That's why the author of Kings and Samuel had to write in the middle of the Babylonian captivity. It's not God's fault that y'all are here. It's ours because we stopped believing because we stopped trusting the Lord because we actually no longer wanted to serve him, but wanted to serve other gods. That's why this happened. That's the explanation because we were not faithful to God, not because God failed in any way. And now Chronicles is going to explain, now that they're coming back into the land, where do we go from here, having had what we thought to be true uh, assaulted uh, for essentially two generations, 70 years. Now, how do we know that that Chronicles is written post-exile? How do we know that? Well, many scholars suggest that uh, Chronicles was, if not the very last, one of the last books of the New Testament written. In fact, in the in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, they have the same books as us, but they're slightly different order, and it ends on Chronicles. It's the last book. But more than that, um, and I can explain why our order is different later, it doesn't really matter, but if anybody's super curious, come see me after class. Um Why, what, what, how do we know that it is written after the exile? Besides the fact that it's positioned at the end of the Hebrew Bible, we also know it's written post-exile by how its book ended. The book begins with this massive genealogy. And it's largely what you'd expect, working from Abraham, then to the twelve tribes, then with, with a special focus on David. But towards the end of the genealogy, somebody please read First Chronicles 9, 1 to 2. maybe somebody with, a, with an ESV can also read the section heading there. First Chronicles what? 9, 1-2. And include the section heading just for fun. A genealogy of the returned exiles. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Great. So the, the chronicler tells us right there, not just with the help of a section heading, but actually in the inspired text, now the first to dwell again in their possession after chronicling that they'd been taken out of it, right? So that's how we know. And then also the book ends on that note, uh, somebody's second Chronicles 36, 20 to 23, 2 Chronicles 36, 20 23. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill seventy years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Thank you very much, honey. So we see there that that's the... the The Lord has stirred the King Cyrus at the end of seven years, just as he prophesied, to issue a decree that these people are to go back. Specifically, uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and some Levites that were there. And so that's that's how we know that it's written post-exile. Why did I spend so much time on that? Because knowing that it's written post-exile affects our interpretation of the book. And I want you to see that I'm not imposing that grid on it, rather that's the grid the book itself gives us. Does that make sense? The book tells us it's written post-exile, therefore that ought to influence how we interpret it. Uh, So we'll start with our first major section, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Chronicles through 9, which is genealogies, which are easily the most fun part of the Bible to read. You can laugh, that was, that was a joke. Uh, there, yeah, 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 Um While they can be dry and difficult, uh, if you put in the effort to actually study them, they're some of the most rewarding parts of Scripture. So we learn a couple of things in this genealogy. Uh, you may recall last week, I stated that none of the ten northern tribes ever came back to the Promised Land. That's why they're generally historically referred to as the Lost Tribes. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but not by much. So when Assyria comes and takes the northern ten tribes, those people never came back. Some of them stayed behind in the land and were married into other people groups that came and took over the land in the intermittent time. And so they basically mixed races Uh, to the point of not being recognizable or distinguishable anymore. When you come to the New Testament and you read things like the Jews, those that are descended from the tribe of Judah, had no dealing with Samaritans, that's the descendants of some of those that remained behind, that would be mixed uh, racially. Um, And then also, what we do see in this genealogy, though, is that some, at the fall of the northern tribes, came back to Judah, and so they wound up going into exile with those when Babylon came to conquer them uh, a lot uh, by that I mean uh, excuse me I'm lost in my notes here tried to do too much without reading it, and now I can't find my place again um, there's a reference to these tribes though joining themselves to judah in in second chronicles eleven seventeen and then also uh, in fifteen four, eight thirty eleven, 4, 8, 30, 30, 18, 30, 21. And I can give you those references later. But you see them referenced specifically within this portion of the genealogies in chapter 9, 3 to 9. So we see that in some way, even though it's a very small representative, God preserves all of the tribes in this captivity. And so when they return... In small numbers, but nonetheless, all of the tribes are represented. The other interesting thing that we see in these genealogies is there are several foreigners counted amongst the people of Israel. That is, several non-ethnically descendants of Abraham that are counted among the people of God even in the Old Testament. We see the Ishmaelites. These would be descendants of Ishmael, as opposed to Isaac, through whom the blessing was supposed to go. We see the Ishmaelites in 1 Chronicles one thirty. <coughs> And again, in 2730, we see Kenites, which are another uh, foreign group referenced in 1 Chronicles 255. And then several foreign temple uh, servants are, are referenced throughout 1 Chronicles 9. Now, what do we learn about God and his promises from these facts? What do we learn about God and his promises through the fact that there are small remnants even of the northern tribes that come back? And also that it includes foreigners? Well, for one, we learn that God's promises were never limited by ethnic boundaries. Yes, it is absolutely true that in the Old Testament, he concentrated his works and his efforts on the people of Israel. But the promise from the beginning was that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They were never limited by that. Secondly, we learn that God never forgets to keep the least detail of his promises. That is, he made a small provision for some representatives of the northern tribes. And lastly, uh, while there is a preference given to those who are the children of the tribe of Judah by birth, it is only those who trust the Lord's promises that will be the beneficiaries of those promises. That is to say, there are several people, even from Judah, that don't make it back, that don't make it through because they are wiped out. Doctor Phillips is preaching about a son of Judah and Jeconiah in Jeremiah thirty-six. That his his line (coughs) wiped out. It is only those who believe the promises of God through faith that actually benefit from them. And finally, we learned that in addition to the tribe of Judah, in these genealogies there are several references to the tribe of Levi. Uh, For example, you could compare the genealogy as listed in chapters six and seven, and you'll see that Levi takes up a lot of space. And tribes like Manasseh, Ephraim, ones like that are like maybe two lines. Levi gets a whole chapter. There's a special emphasis on the tribe of Levi. What's the, the old covenant significance of the tribe of Levi? Does anybody remember? What was their job? They were what? The priests. So there's a special emphasis in Chronicles both on the tribe of Judah, who are the kingly tribe, and on the tribe of Levi, who are the priestly tribe in other words what we're told even at the outset is the answer to this question where do we go from here it's going to involve a priest and a king i hope you see where this is going that's right it's always going there i hope you see that 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 he's even laying the foundation within the genealogy with this emphasis on a (coughs) royal tribe and on a priestly tribe now, 1 Chronicles, or First Chronicles rather, into of 2 Chronicles is going to cover the United Kingdom. Uh, this is the longest section on the book at nearly 30 chapters, and it makes it, that, therefore it takes up a little bit more than half. And this section focuses on David and Solomon, both of whom we discussed quite extensively last week, but they're going to function in a little bit of a different way. Um... There's special emphasis that's given uh, on Solomon and David that's not mentioned in Kings, such as David's efforts in providing uh, the means for the building of the temple. Uh, David's organizing of the Levites to build the temple in Samuel and Kings is given about six verses. In Chronicles, it's given a chapter. There's a bigger emphasis on this. Solomon is also portrayed uh, deeply associated with the worship of God. Uh, One scholar writes, the chronicler omitted most of the well-known failures of these kings that were recorded in Samuel and Kings because he sought to persuade his audience to seek God's blessing by following the positive features of the reigns of David and Solomon. Again, it's not to say that the chronicler is trying to whitewash history and pretend like bad things didn't happen. He's not doing that. He, he references several times, and you can read more about this in the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. He, he, he points you to those sources. He's not trying to hide it from you. Rather, that's not the point he's trying to get across. It's not deceptive. It's not a lie. But it's rather the goal that he has is not to gloss over their failures as it was to remind the readers that while you're well acquainted with the failures of David, David wasn't all bad. Solomon wasn't all bad. They did good things too. Specifically, they are highlighted for preserving the, the authentic and correct worship of God. And then in the, sec, uh, the, the third section, which I gave up on trying to write, uh, this is Judah during the divided kingdom, and for those of you who want it for your notes, this is going to go from 2 Chronicles 10 to 28. Unlike kings, which kind of alternated back and forth between a northern king and a southern king, and made assessments of those, uh, the chronicler is going to focus nearly all of his attention on the king of Judah. Again, because he's trying to to settle uh, the the doubts and the concerns that we no longer have a Davidic king. He's focusing on the Davidic line to, to point us to that. The chronicler led his audience to consider how the blessings and curses of God depended both on the rule of David's house and the observance of the temple and its services. And we see this on both ends of the spectrum. The the good kings, the first thing they do is repair the temple. For example, there's Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29.3. That's literally the first thing he does. Would somebody read that? Second Chronicles 29.3. Ms. Duncan. He in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. First year, first month. Number one on the agenda. Let's get the temple set back up. And he's reflected on throughout the records as a good king. Bad kings dissent into idolatry. Good kings turn to the Lord in times of trouble, like Jehoshaphat and his epic prayer in Second Chronicles twenty five to 12 We've got time. I'll read that for us. This is a great prayer that would be worthy of y'all's uh, devotion and reflection later this afternoon. But this is, this is a, a tremendous prayer during a time of trouble. Second Chronicles 20, beginning in verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not our God? drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. See, he's rehearsing the history of who God has been to his people. And they have lived in it and have built for you in its sanctuary for your name saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save." He's citing the prayer of Solomon centuries earlier at the dedication of the temple. He's doing exactly what Solomon said to do. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a good prayer. And and the Lord blesses that prayer, and it leads to success. And, And so you see that the point is, the, the following the line of, of the good kings and following their example, they come and they worship and they pray before God and God blesses them. And that's the, the, the theme that the chronicler is trying to unfold again and again throughout the book. Where do we go from here? We trust the Lord and we trust his appointed servants. We worship him the way he says And we worship him under the leadership that he has instituted. We worship God according to his word, without any innovation or corruption from false gods. Or to put it another way, we do what is right under the right authority. Now here's the thing. Chronicles, the last book of the Old Testament, it begins with this uh, massive genealogy, as we've talked about. And it ends with this great decree of Cyrus to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But Cyrus, in sending them back to the promised land, if you read his decree, he does not reinstitute the Davidic line. They're not free, right? When we when we come to the New Testament, they're still they're under Roman occupation. They're just passed off from one uh, ruling power to the next, who's really in authority and sets up puppet rulers that he can manipulate like Herod the Tetrarch and so on and so forth the chronicler is pointing to a day that has not yet arrived because they're trying to answer the question where's the land and where's our king what do we do How is God going to keep his promises to Abraham and to David? Because they don't even really own the land. They're just allowed to dwell in it. Well, 400 years later, a retired tax collector named Matthew is going to write the first book of the New Testament. And he's going to begin the very same way the last book of the Old Testament began. He's going to begin with the genealogy. And the first line of that genealogy is, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of Abraham, the son of David. The the, the chronicler is pointing us to the king who would also be a priest. The chronicler is pointing us to the Lord Jesus, who is the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, because they were never merely about physical land, and they were never merely about a human king. They were always about the, the kingdom to come and the great king who would rule over his people Forever, Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And though, Lord, some parts of it are so distant from our culture and so distant from the way that we think, we thank you, Lord, that it all points to the Lord Jesus and tells us about him. And we ask now, Father, that as we are still waiting for our heavenly dwelling, as we are still waiting for the... Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. The land that you promised with the king that you promised. We pray, Lord, that you would continually point us to him. This and all of our days. And that you would strengthen our faith. That we would walk by faith and not by sight. We ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.